This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Dr. Sean Blanchard, who is a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Newman Studies and soon to be a lecturer in theology at the University of Notre Dame, but not the one you're thinking of, the one all the way over in Australia. He's the author of several books in the area of theological history, including a global anthology of the Catholic Enlightenment on CUA Press, which he co-authored, co-edited rather, with Dr. Ulrich Lerner. Uh, and Coming in very soon, uh, a volume of Oxford's very short introduction series on Vatican II, which he co-authored with Dr. Stephen Bullivant. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much. I'm very happy to speak with you. So before we get into the meat of the book, I'm always interested in the path that people take uh, and the seminal moments uh, that lead people to their, their, their core interest in whether it be catechetics or whether it be to the priesthood or in your case to, to theology and to historic theology, uh, because it's not the kind of thing that you hear many five-year-olds saying, when I grow up, I want to. <laughs> uh, so for you, what was the, the moment, the event, the thing that captured your attention and drew you to historical theology and history in general? Well, that's a wonderful question, and I really could I could go on and on and on about that. So I'm going to try and limit, uh, circumscribe my answer. I would say the big picture uh, is that I was raised in a very, very devout, um, reformed Protestant home in North Carolina, um, and I was, you know, I was interested in theology, I was interested in the Bible, but I became very, very interested in the history of my community. You know, why do we have ties with Northern Irish Protestant pastors, for example? but we don't have anything to do with the Methodists down the street. You know, that, that kind of a very practical question that, you know, I don't think many of my peers were asking it in quite the same way. Um, and this eventually led me to an interest in the church, you know, what was going on in the church before Martin Luther, because, you know, Martin Luther was an important figure for us, even though we didn't really have anything to do with Lutherans. Um, and then a long story short, which I think, you know, many listeners might be, might be able to relate to if they're converts, I end up becoming a, a, a Catholic through a, you know, a very normal path of reading the church fathers, learning about the mass, wondering what Jesus really meant in John chapter six, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and when I became a Catholic, I had no interest at all in Vatican II for, I, I said in a recent, um, editorial that I wrote. Um, for me, the council was Nicaea. Uh, <laughs> what I was interested in was, oh, I'm at mass and we're saying this ancient creed and isn't this so cool? And I was thinking about the early church and stuff like that. Um, but it became very clear to me early on in my time as a Catholic, I was baptized in April of 2006. So Ratzinger had just become Pope. It became very clear to me that there are, there are disagreements and, and major disagreements about a very recent, a relatively recent and, and, and very important event. So I remember writing my senior, I had a kind of uh, seminar term paper for religious studies at the University of North Carolina, and the professor was Jewish, a Jewish historian, um, and, and he encouraged me to look into the Second Vatican Council. So I wrote on the question of the Jewish people, so Nostra Aetate, the document of the Second Vatican Council, and Catholic thought. So it was a continuity and change and kind of practice teaching uh, relationship with the Jewish people. So that really opened up a whole new world of how Catholicism actually sort of concretely functions, you know, everything from homilies to uh, opinions of people in the pews all the way up to the teachings of popes. So Vatican II became a kind of 
uh, lodestar for me that I kept returning to. And that ultimately led to this, this book that I've, I've just written with Stephen. As I was processing the book, one of the things that, as you mentioned, Vatican II can be somewhat contentious depending on who you're talking to. Um, and one of the things that came to the front of my attention was that reform for the church is nothing new. We have this phrase that we talk about, the church is ever ancient, ever new. Uh, and I noticed throughout history that that we add processes and procedures at each age in time that enhance our worship in that age, but can hinder it in other circumstances. And specifically, when we begin to conflate those things, processes, procedures, lowercase t traditions, when we conflate those with sacred tradition and with the deposit of faith, uh, we start fighting battles that we were never meant to fight. Um, and so I see throughout history, and, and of course, as a historian, you could probably give us 15, 20 examples off the top of your head, that the church is in constant renewal as she safeguards the deposit of faith from being gummed up, the works being gummed up by our additives. So before we get into specifically Vatican II, can you maybe give us a framework for the flow of history up until that point? What were the, the ebbs and flows of additives and reforms going on that bring us to this place of this council? Mm. Well, that's, yeah, another, another fantastic question that I could, I could talk about for a very long time. So, cause really my, my first book is on a very, um, explosive and I would say misunderstood, well, in many cases, forgotten reform attempts in Tuscany in, in the year 1786 called the Synod of Pistoia. Um, and this is one of the great, uh, failed reform attempts, um, in Catholic history. And they had, it, it's a really wonderful case study, I think, because they had fantastic ideas and many of the ideas that they tried to implement at this, at this synod, which they had intended to be copied all around Tuscany, all around Italy, and ultimately all around the entire Catholic world. Um, but the reforms ran aground, um, and they, and they really failed very, very quickly. They weren't received by the people so that what we would now call the census fidelium, the sense of the faith of the people of God, rejected most of these reforms in most cases. The papacy rejected the reforms and most of the brother bishops of this very aggressive, zealous reforming bishop also rejected his reforms. So I use in the book Yves Congar, the great uh, Dominican, 20th century Dominican theologian, who was one of the, the real uh, protagonists of the Second Vatican Council uh, work closely with, with Joseph Ratzinger. I use his, he has four criteria uh, for true reform in the church. Uh, and he's very, the reason I, I like his work so much is he'll go all the way back to, well, he'll go back all the way to the early church. He'll talk about St. Augustine, St. Irenaeus, John Chrysostom, you know, all these great patristic figures. But he really is an expert, I think, on kind of the medieval period till today. Um, so he'll sort of compare and contrast various figures. You know, why, why did Newman, John Henry Newman said some really provocative things. He had, he had some enemies. He had people who didn't like his ideas or misunderstood his ideas. And nevertheless, his reforms or his view of, of continuity and change in the church has really stuck. And if anything has sort of grown and blossomed, why is that? Why was he successful and not uh, De Laminay, who is this brilliant a uh, zealous French uh, Catholic reformer from the early uh, 19th century. So he sort of compares these different case studies. So I sort of, I try to do this in my book too, with sort of why, why did this particular group of, of zealous Catholics fail? Whereas what we see at the second Vatican council with the, the kind of racehorse Mont crowd, Congar, uh, Ratzinger, et cetera, why are their reforms successful? 
Um, so to circumscribe it a little bit, I would say after, after the Council of Trent, you have a kind of, you have a very, um, it's, it's sort of a paradox, which we see a lot in Catholic history, because you have a very defensive mentality, which is to not really affirm any of the Protestant critiques, except moral critiques. So of course, priests with concubines or greedy bishops or something, you can affirm that's real, that's a problem, we have to clean that up, but we can't really affirm any of the the theological ideas or the theological critiques. And nevertheless, as my mentor, Ulrich Lehner, has shown in so much of his work, there's tremendous theological creativity and innovation in Tridentine Catholicism. So you kind of have this paradox, and I think this paradox continues into the Age of Enlightenment. It continues into what we might call the ultramontane era, um, where you have a sort of you have a sort of defensiveness, you have a kind of fortress mentality, and nevertheless, the church is actually always... <laughs> updating and modernizing and and on these innovative theological and spiritual quests of renewal. So that's sort of how I would, in a nutshell, I would say there's this constant tension that is a healthy tension. Uh, you can't just have innovation and you can't just have defensiveness and you kind of need, you need this within a family, within a parish, and certainly within a global church. You need both of these tendencies. There are two reforms that pop into my mind as I think of the way that reform plays out. Uh, one on a on a narrow scale, and one on a, on a global church scale. Um, the first is Saint uh, Teresa of Avila, who came in to reform her order, and was met. It, of course, we can look at it and say it was a, a successful reform, but it was met with immense blowback. Um, and she was uh, she was suppressed. She was resisted at every turn, and yet she persisted. And the ideas eventually took root and have had profound impacts on her order and thereby on the church through that. Second, I think of your council, the first one we were talking about, the Council of Nicaea, um, where the the council met. The council had their deliberations. The council voted, and uh, one of the council fathers. Uh, spoke afterwards and said it was as if we woke up and the whole world was Aryan. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so the council, the council went through. They <laughs> deliberated as the the successor to the apostles. They made a determination. They let the canons of the council go out and be distributed. And not only did it seem to not have effect, it seemed to have the opposite effect, where those ideas that were rejected by the council sprung up and. Um, and took root for a very long time. And so one of the things that strikes me about Vatican II is we look at the aftermath of the council. We look at the implementation of the council, and we see people who um, who are taking the words of the council to a place the council never intended, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have a group of people who look at that and say, oh, look, the council failed. But 50 years is a blink in the eye of the church. And if you look 50 years past the Council of Nicaea, you would have called it an abject failure. Absolutely. No question. You wrote this very uh, very short introduction. That's the, uh, the a descriptive title, but it's also the name of the series. Very short introduction on Vatican II. What would your, your summary of the success of the council be, uh, both in the book and, and just for us here today? Um, well, one thing regarding the title, um, my, my wife and some of my friends said that they, they never thought they'd see the phrase very short, uh, very short introduction <laughs> next to my name. Um, cause I've, 
I've, uh, you know, when you, when you first emerge from grad, grad school, you're constantly qualifying everything you say and adding immense, a forest of citations. Um, what I would say about the successes of the Second Vatican Council, um, I do think that the council was innovative. I do think that the council, uh, in some ways, quote unquote, modernized the church. Um, there were some uh, incidents or some, there were, there were some situations, concrete situations the church needed to address that I think it addressed very successfully. But I would say the greatest uh, the genius of the council actually, and perhaps ironically, given the way that the, that the debates often go, the genius was actually in the ways in which it went back, the ways that in which it sort of the term resourcement uh, that the French reformers coined, going back to patristic and biblical ideas. And, and I was talking about this recently with, with Larry Chapp on his show, because we will email each other about various uh, agreements and disagreements and <laughs> things like that. And, and, and I, I said to him, I think the, the, the most enduring successes are the ways in which the council returned to a prior attitude or teaching or theological motif. So you take Lumen Gentium, for example, the constitution on the church, it's retrieving all these images of the church, but they're all biblical images. I mean, the only, the only thing that's in, in, in my reading if I'm remembering correctly, the term universal sacrament of salvation is a term that Otto Semmelroth, the German Jesuit, coins, but he's using a deeply biblical grammar in order to coin it. So that's the only instance, I think, where you have an image of the church in Lumen Gentium that is not directly from patristic or biblical sources. So I would say the greatest success, the most enduring success, uh, documents like Dei Verbum, documents like Lumen Gentium, where they're returning to this, this fret, this, you know, what you were saying earlier, ever, ever ancient and ever new biblical and patristic language. So they're able to reach back behind a kind of counter, counter-reformation uh, defensiveness, which was necessary, at least to a certain extent, a kind of counter-enlightenment and counter-revolutionary perspective that we get in the 18th and 19th centuries. And they're able to retrieve the kind of fresh spring, fresh springs of the patristic and biblical tradition. So all the stuff about the centrality of scripture, reading scripture, scripture in the life, uh, the life of the church, the life of the lady, that's, that's straight from patristic sources. There's nothing new about that. It's just a kind of confident and optimistic uh, reapplication. So that, that would be my, my answer for the greatest successes. Not to deny that there are new situations that are being met, especially politically. It's a post-World War II environment. Nostra Aetate clearly is a response to the Holocaust. Dignitatis Humanae is a response to totalitarianism. There's no question about that. But the thing that impacts my students when I present these documents to them, the thing that impacts their spiritual lives is all Vatican II going backwards. You bring up an interesting point there that so often we, as we discuss Vatican II, there is this assumption that it stands as a monolith, uh, stands alone and unique on the one hand, and that it stands as definitive and final on the other. Um, as you mentioned, it was uh, it is a reform for a specific age, and I think that we are still in that age. But I think that there are uh, there are con- there is a need for continual reform that we continue to look and and progress. And of course, you working with Newman studies, there is a a need for there to be 
a continual development in our understanding of the deposit of faith. Not that the deposit of faith changes, but that we understand it in new lights based on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I'm curious, because there is the criticism that I have heard, that Vatican II stands alone as a council because of the way that it exists that the canon, there are no canons, there are no anathemas, there are no anything. So how how would you situate Vatican II as a council up against the other councils? What do you see as the things that are uh, the same, and what do you where do you see maybe things that um, set it apart as a council? Well, the, the, I think the most important difference uh, is the sheer magnitude of the documents that it produces. Um, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe the text of the Second Vatican Council, the promulgated documents, is something like four times the text of the Council of Trent, as far as sort of word count, the, the official Latin promulgated editions uh, of the text. Uh, so that's a massive discontinuity. It says much, much, much more. And it says, it says something about lots of topics uh, that councils in the past maybe wouldn't have commented on. Um, and I was actually, again, talking with, uh, you know, St- Stephen Bullivan and I, who, who co-wrote the book, we were talking with, with Larry Chapp a couple of weeks ago, and we ended up going for like over two hours. And one of the things that we sort of worked through was, I mean, this is a, this is a discontinuity. It's a new thing a council is doing, but there is precedent for it insofar as the papal encyclical tradition just massively uh, mushrooms. I mean, the, the, the things that Pope's comments about in the era that I study intensely sort of with archival sources is the 18th century. And the papacy was still mostly in the 1700s, a kind of court of final appeal. There was, they were starting to get the notion of the papacy as a kind of teaching. It is a teaching office, but it's sort of ruling out bad ideas that are coming out of universities or religious orders or something like that. And then it's sort of encouraging bishops to be good pastors. That's mostly what it does. But by the by Leo the Thirteenth, you have this this explosion of the papal encyclical tradition. And then they start talking about yeah. unions, they start talking about wages, they start talking about, you know, communism and political problems and threats. And so the so Vatican II is sort of which is it's trying to assert itself as a as, as supreme organ of teaching. So the whole the ecclesiological point is Catholicism isn't just about the Pope. The Pope is actually the head of a college of bishops. The college has no authority apart from the Pope. The, it, the, the body must have its head. And nevertheless, there is supreme authority in the universal church represented in an ecumenical council. So the council just, I think, quite naturally is trying to do what it sees the Pope doing, which is comment on all sorts of issues in a kind of authoritative or exhortative or whatever different way. But that is a discontinuity in the history of councils. Um, another discontinuity um, is the the genre, the style of writing. So John O'Malley uh, is, is sort of puts this beautifully in his work and he kind of analyzes this from a more, a more literary uh, fashion. Um, so, so that is an important discontinuity. But as far as a, a, a continuity, um, I think that the I think the Second Vatican Council is uh, addressing the world that it finds itself in, and that that is what councils have always done to either successfully or not successfully, depending on the council. Um, so I think that it you know the title of Gaudium et Spes and and Stephen Bolivan is the one who pointed this out to me. The actual Latin says. 
It's uh, the pastoral constitution on the church in the world of today. So it's speaking explicitly to the world of 1965. It's not speaking to a kind of abstract modernity. Um, the Council of Trent is speaking to the situation in 1545, 1555, 1563, whenever the documents were published. And the documents, so this is where I push back at the, the, the allegation that, that, well, Vatican II is ambiguous and the other councils are clear. Council people are arguing about the Council of Trent until at least 1800, at least. Right. The the, the document that or the uh, papal bull that condemns the Synod of Pistoia in 1794 starts being printed as an appendix to the Acts of the Council of Trent as a kind of authoritative uh, commentary or correction on uh, on bishops who are erroneously, from the perspective of the Pope, interpreting the Council of Trent. They're having debates about what Trent means about scripture and tradition in the 1950s. So what, what you know, so this whole, I think this whole idea that, oh, well, what, suddenly there's ambiguity and a lack of clarity. Well, no, it's just theological discourse is really hard. Uh, this is human language to talk about infinite things, or it's pragmatic language. It's about what's the right way to run a seminary or... Uh, women religious uh, communities or whatever it yeah. might be. These are difficult things that have to be interpreted and parsed. And there is no, there's no magic bullet where you can cut through hermeneutics and suddenly have complete clarity, even with the infallible, you know, and in, infallible pronouncements of popes are, are constantly parsed and, and debated as well. What exactly does it mean that there's no salvation outside the church? You ask somebody that in 1450 verse 1850 verse 2023, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna probably in many cases get get different answers to that. I'm intrigued by um, you. You talked about previous councils were to generally to answer a question. So you have the problem of of Nestorius. You have the problem of Arius. You have almost as if it is this is such an important issue that we need to have a group meeting on the Stubia. Right there, we've we've got to figure this out. Um, Vatican II seems to be looking at a much more nuanced and complex problem. It isn't this person is teaching something wrong. It is there is something that doesn't seem right. It's almost like going uh -huh. to the doctor for a diagnostic versus going to the doctor because you know what's wrong. Uh -huh. And and so there is this sense of um, we have to chase down a number of threads rather than deal with just this one thing because we have currently a complex issue with the way that we live in the world today as the church. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that the Second Vatican Council is saying um, that, uh, and Stephen's work, Stephen Bolivant's work on this is excellent. There's a sense that, uh, especially in Europe, but not exclusively in Europe, but especially in Europe, the church is struggling to communicate the gospel in an intellectually and spiritually compelling way. That there are more powerful alternatives, competing isms or ways of thinking or ways of spending your time on Sunday morning or whatever it might be. There, are, there is a kind of creeping secularization and the church really has to go back to the, the, the tools in the toolbox, which I think are mostly patristic and biblical at the end of the day in order to address this problem. But it's an, it's, it's an abstract, it's, it is somewhat abstract. I, I agree with that. One of the things that I also find pointing to the, the, the changing reality that we find ourselves in is that the documents of the church from Vatican II and beyond, you often see in encyclicals that 
these encyclicals are now addressed, you know, we've got that little address at the top as to who it's for. Uh-huh. It's addressed to the bishops uh, and to the clergy, but also to the lay faithful. And that's something that we didn't see often, generally because those kinds of letters would not have had a format that was available to the lay faithful. And so it was more of a uh, kind of an all points bulletin. Now you go and you teach this in your own dioceses as, as you through your role as um, the teaching authority of that diocese. Yeah, exactly. But now the Pope is also including us in his letters to them saying, uh, literacy is higher, means of communication are more available. So now you are in, in, it's no longer a closed letter. Now it's an open letter to everyone in the church. Yes, definitely. The, 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 the history of this as well, I think is, is so much of this goes back to the 18th century, which is something that I would claim, you know, because it's the, the period that I'm studying. Um, but the, the idea of the papacy appealing directly to the people, as far as I, I can tell, that's coming out of, uh, in, in the 1780s, you have these very aggressive, um, they're often called enlightened despots, you know, Joseph II, the emperor, the Austrian emperor, who's making all kinds of changes, many of which uh, are, are disturbing the, the papacy and the religious orders. And the Pope actually goes, physically leaves Rome and goes to Vienna to tr- sort of try to exhort the young emperor to kind of change, change course. And he realizes when he's there and there's a, a kind of, you know, a letter trail about this of, you know, cardinals and other people commenting on it. But he realizes that massive, massive crowds of people are coming out to see him and to receive his blessing. And they're not necessarily the, his opponents, his ideological opponents, you know, Jansenists and, and um, these kinds of uh, statists. Uh, they were called Josephinists, the followers of, of the Emperor Joseph. They're, they're, they don't have any sort of spiritual clout or sort of celebrity status or anything like that. So I think you see, again, a kind of paradoxical situation of a kind of ultramontane modernization. So you see a kind of, the, the papacy is actually sort of pushing its own sort of modernization as pastor, as self-consciously pastor of a global community. I think that's really, really key to understanding modern Catholicism. So the old kind of Gallican model where the national churches are the sort of uh, basic unit of the church and the bishops can can kind of deliberate and, and sort of effectively block papal teaching if they don't agree with it. Um, that's, that, that's not very well suited to a, a, a modern global, certainly with the advent of, of modern technology. So now we have a situation, we have this sort of on steroids where I might see a papal encyclical has re- been released on Twitter before mm-hmm. the Bishop of Baton Rouge reads it. Cause he might be, yeah. maybe he's waiting for an email attachment. And in the past, the, the Bishop of Baton Rouge, well, there was no Bishop, the Bishop of New Orleans would have been waiting for a ship to dock at Havana, Cuba, or, you know, Pensacola, Florida to carry him a, a, a document of a, you know, a papal document. So the whole means of communication has radically, radically changed. And the office of the papacy, again, paradoxically, cause it was always, it was seen as this sort of conservative um, holdout, the office of the papacy actually drove Catholic modernization in, in really, in many cases, positive and effective ways. We're talking today with Dr. Sean Blanchard. Uh, he is the co-author of Oxford's very short introduction on Vatican II. It's coming out very soon. We'll put a link to it over on social media. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about Vatican II, uh, specifically the ways in which uh, reform happens within the Catholic Church. We're talking with Dr. Sean Blanchard, Senior Research Fellow at National Institute for Newman Studies and lecturer in the- soon-to-be lecturer in theology for the University of Notre Dame in Australia. Uh, he co-authored the book, uh, The Very Short Introduction on Vatican II, available on Oxford University Press. We'll have a link to that over on our social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. Dr. Blanchard, so great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. It's great uh, to spend time with you, TL. So let's talk about uh, your, you're doing a lot of research and work in the 1800s. You're talking uh, with and inter- interfacing with John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman. Talk to me some about who he was and how his ideas could help us better understand what Vatican II was and how to implement it. Well, I, yeah, that's a great question. I, I first was interested in, in Newman. I mean, I knew Newman was a major figure uh, in, the, in the Catholic intellectual tradition. He's also an ecumenical figure. He spent the first half of his life uh, as an Anglican. He was ordained an Anglican priest uh, and then converts to Catholicism in 1845. Um, he was 45 years old, so his life sort of spans really the entire uh, 19th century. He dies in 1890, and uh, he's made a Catholic cardinal towards the end of his life. He comments on all the great debates of 19th century Catholicism, the Immaculate Conception, the issue of development of doctrine, um, the role of the laity, uh, and then, of course, papal infallibility and the First Vatican Council. He's quite famous for his... um, very cautious acceptance of that teaching, the way in which he tried to reconcile it with other uh, important uh, Catholic uh, ecclesiological ideas. Um, Newman for me is is a really, uh, it kind of opened up a new world to me because I was searching for what are the roots of the Second Vatican Council? And the kind of standard story I got was, well, you know, you have these, these really exciting um, you know, missionary priests, you have worker priests and you have, uh, you know, um, people like Dorothy Day and you have these great intellectuals. Chiefly, I would say that's the story, Henri de Lubac, Ratzinger, Congar, people like that. And then I was trying to say, okay, well, what about before that? Like, you know, where, where are these people getting their ideas from? Where, where does this, where does this kind of seed really begin to sprout? And um, Newman was often pointed to, there was a kind of older generation of Newman scholars who, who I think very correctly recognized Newman as a forerunner of the Second Vatican Council. Um, and then I pushed back in my first book, trying to go even further back in time than that. You can, you can uh, get to the Tubigen School, these really uh, fascinating young Germans uh, who, who have a Catholic faculty alongside a Protestant faculty in the early 19th century. And then I kind of go back further into the, into the 1700s. But Newman encapsulates, I think, um, a, an ecclesiological perspective. I think this partly because he was a convert, actually, because the way in which he encountered all these patristic and biblical ideas, which he brings into his Catholicism, and then he's able to sort of fuse them in a kind of ecclesially healthy way with the neo-scholasticism, uh, with the Roman school, and with the other um, kind of uh, fish in the pond with him in the Catholic world. Um, but Newman, Newman has an ecclesiological, um, a very balanced ecclesiological perspective 
on the role of laity, the role of bishops, the role of the Pope in a very, he understands this in a very organic uh, and I think a fruitful way that is not as impacted by the, by the polemical context of post-Enlightenment, post-French Revolution Catholicism. So going back to what I said earlier about the Second Vatican Council, the great genius of it is in the ways in which it goes back to prior sources in a way that bypasses a more polemical tradition. I think Newman actually was also able to do that in ways that have, have maybe not been fully recognized. He's not operating, and his, his goal is not to be anti-Protestant, anti-Jansenist, anti-Enlightenment. He is anti all of those things in his own way but uh, in, in, a, in a way that I think allowed for a, a much more fertile uh, ecclesiological perspective. Mm -hmm. The role of the theologian is an interesting one because uh, as opposed to the catechist, who is to echo the faith and to, to, to pass on the faith in, in a way that is faithful to everything that's gone before, uh, well, kind of like lockstep. I mean, you're literally echoing the words of someone else. The theologian is there to push the boundaries and to see where the edges of Catholicism are and where the, you know, where the direction is of what these patristic sources are, to interpret them, to understand them, uh, and help us to understand them. And so sometimes you get a theologian that that bumps up against the edges and maybe goes a little too far, and then the church reigns them back in. Um, for the lay faithful— as we are looking at all of the things before us, whether it be looking at the council or looking at the implementation of it or trying to understand our place as the church of today, not the church of today as mentioned back in the council, but the church as it exists today, how do we strike that balance? How do we find that balance of listening to, pursuing, understanding the things that theologians are leaning into while not going too far, while holding on to those things that that are authentic depositive faith, authentic capital T tradition, and not just our pet project or our pet little T tradition. Uh, well, I wish <laughs> I wish I had an easy answer to that question. I think the 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 sad reality is that this is always a struggle, and it's always a there's always a, a tension between um, individual conscience. Um, so on the individual level, there's a tension between individual conscience and ecclesial obedience. Um, and again, I would, I would, I think Congar, well, Newman is actually, Newman's excellent on this. I think Eve Congar in the ecclesial context is, uh, is uh, really bar none with exploring this tension. Um, Ratzinger actually, even though despite his, what his critics say, Ratzinger has some good things to say about this as well. Um, what I try to do in my in my classes, because I've I've taught um, I've taught some seminarians, I've taught a lot of deacon candidates, and they often have a you know they don't phrase it maybe as eloquently as you just did, at least not when they first start the program. But they have this sense and they have this tension. How do how do we reconcile this? Um, so I'm usually approaching this in the context of okay, when you if you're teaching a class or if you're giving a homily, that's not really the place for your private you know, theological speculation. Nevertheless, um, I think it's important to allow unresolved issues to be unresolved. Um, so if a student of mine starts talking about universalism or kind of hope, hopeful universalism is how Catholics would put it, and another student sort of tries to squash it, I'll say, well, okay, look, the, you know, 
the, the majority tradition is is not that. The majority tradition is some people are are going to heaven, some people are going to hell. Um, there's a, a judgment. There's sheep, sheep and goats, etc. But there is a there is a minority report where this this has always kind of been there. There's always been some people through mysticism or through their kind of philosophical and theological study who have landed on a kind of a hopeful universalist position. And you can say they're wrong and you can debate them and show, you know, arguments why they're wrong, but you, you need to tolerate that there is a, um, an allowable and fruitf fruitful disagreement here. So I think Catholics often, that one of the challenges is that theological disagreement is seen as inherently a problem. And I don't think that it is. I think, mm -hmm. you know, disobeying bishops, disobeying popes, there, there are things that if we are not being commanded to sin, then we need to be obedient in. Uh, and that can be very, very painful. Like when some of these great heroes of Vatican II are told to stop writing either completely or on certain topics in the 1940s and 50s. And they, they in almost every case, obeyed that injunction. And that was at great personal pain. Um, so, you know, it's a complex negotiation. I think I, uh, oh, but on the issue of disagreement. So one of the, I, I remember a really devout uh, deacon um, from a different diocese, not the diocese I'm in, once told me, you know, two good Catholics, if they're both well catechized, can't theologically disagree. They can only agree about, you know, whatever prudence or something like that. And I said, that's really not a, not a healthy view <laughs> of the, how the Catholic tradition works. But I think that's a view that in amidst the kind of some of the more chaotic elements in the air in the 1960s and 70s, I think there was a, a, a desire to clean things up a little bit too much. Um, and I don't think that someone like Joseph Ratzinger ever intended to give this impression. I think he had a really healthy view of theological debate. But some of his disciples, I think, uh, tried to maybe merge you know, theology became really smart catechesis or something like that. And that's really not what the, I think the way you explained it is absolutely correct. You're, you're supposed to bump up against the borders. You're supposed to, 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 to make kind of, to challenge yourself, to challenge the theological community, but you're not supposed to get up on Sunday and give some weird homily about your own idiosyncratic interpretation on, you know, the feast of Corpus Christi. Like that, that's not what that, yeah. what that is for. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, but it's a, it's a challenging negotiation, yeah. uh, as you suggest. Well, going to this conversation about whether or not disagreement is, is allowable. I just think if, if it weren't, if a well-formed person, uh, who, who was thinking with the church could only come to one conclusion, then right. why do we have any councils at all yeah, absolutely. where bishops come yeah. together who yeah. are ostensibly well-formed, right. <laughs> right? right? Who are supposed to be thinking with the church. If there's only one outcome, there would be no need for these councils. And we even all the way back to the very first council that we see in Acts 15, um, you look at the arguments that were made and, and the arguments even that were made based on the scripture that they had at their disposal. And it's obvious what they would choose. And yet, Peter spoke and said, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that, and went the other direction. Yes, um, right. There was disagreement. They were all well-formed, and yet within his teaching authority and teaching role as uh, the the first among equals, he made that determination. Yes. And so uh, for us, I think that there's a disservice to our own 
uh, development of our conscience, to the own development of our uh, our intellect, if we think that everything has an answer, if we become fundamentalists in the sense that I can find the right answer to every question, uh, there's a reason that we have ethicists and and medical boards uh, staffed by Catholics to help people in hospitals. There's a reason that we have theologians in academia across the world, because the way that our faith interacts with our culture in each age and in each location, it's going to have different effect and it's going to need different application. And that's why we have theologians to bump up against those edges so we as the church don't stumble. Yeah, I could, I couldn't agree more. Let me let me give you one other example. Uh, I, I was once in a conversation with a a cleric. He was a, a brother, not a priest, um, and he says, "You know, this is a question you sometimes get as a layman." He pointed to me and another layman who were both PhD students at Marquette University, and he goes, "Well, why why are you?" You know, he's very respectful, but it was clear he just didn't get it. Why are you laymen studying theology? And I thought he meant like, "Oh, because you're you're not." studying to be priests. And I sort of started talking about, well, you know, the lay vocation, all this stuff. And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, haven't they already figured it all out? <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, it, and I think his background was in engineering or the sciences or something. So I think that there's sometimes a, a psychological, um, so the idea of an infallible church or an indefectible church, a church that remains in the truth is one that, that I hold, and there is a level of kind of spiritual and psychological comfort to that, that I feel as a Catholic, I can rest in not just God, but in my fellow men and women who have deep faith and are very smart and very holy. And, um, you know, and there's just this community, you're resting in this community that is the living, the dead, the, the saintly, the saints in heaven, et cetera. But that can be that's right and good, but it, that could be twisted into a kind of, um, a kind of fundamentalism to where mm-hmm. there is no more tension, there's no more ambiguity, the problem is only the traditionalists or the dissenters or the liberals, and you sort of get a group who are disturbing what you find comfortable, which you probably right. have very good reasons to find comfortable, and they become the problem rather than we're all humans, we're all limited. I mean, the, the, the documents... And the Catholic Church is very frank about this. We until the eschaton, there's going to be questions and problems, and our knowledge is yeah. limited. Saint Paul himself says, "I see through a glass darkly." That's Saint Paul, someone who who encountered the risen Christ, sees through a glass darkly. So sometimes it's just accepting our finiteness, accepting uh, part of our human condition is a lack of perfect clarity and perfect knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important for us as lay faithful who believe in the infallibility and indefectibility of the church to not put on the church something that she hasn't said, right? She, she as the church, believes so firmly in her infallibility and indefectibility that she's not going to say something about which she is not absolutely a thousand percent sure. And when we put words in her mouth, we don't do her or us any favors. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking today with Dr. Sean Blanchard, Senior Research Fellow at the National Institute for Newman Studies and soon-to-be lecturer of theology at the University of Notre Dame in Australia. The book is a very short introduction on Vatican II, which will be available on Oxford University Press. We've got a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you very much. Had a great time talking with you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Blanchard or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you just can't get enough, well, I've got good news. There is more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment with our guests that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them a couple extra questions with our guests and a deeper dive into the topic. You can learn more about that Patreon support community by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking the Patreon link there in the menu. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, original language research, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This is right at the very end as Christ is ascending into heaven, and we read these words. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And a few things here. First, I want to spend some time on that very provocative line that when they saw him, when they saw Jesus there on the mountain, right where he said he would be, and right as he directed them to go, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, here we have these men who have followed Jesus for three years. They know him intimately. They know uh, everything about him. They know his mannerisms. They, they've spent so much time with him. And they see him on the mountain. He, after he was resurrected, he spent 40 days. Of, over that time, he appeared to the disciples before he ascended into heaven. So we have multiple appearances of Christ after his resurrection to these disciples. And here they are, they come up to the mountain, they see him and they worship him. And there is something internal to them that they know this is, this is, has to be God. They worship him. But some doubted. If they who knew him, who had their eyes on him in this moment, if they doubted, we ought to be lenient with ourselves and with others. We, we often demonize doubt and think that doubt is um, a sign of weakness, but doubt is a sign of a hunger for truth and a pursuit of truth. Doubt does not automatically mean a loss of faith. Doubt is searching for faith. It's looking at the situations in front of us and trying to make sense of those things. And so, one, be patient with your own doubt, but also be patient with the doubt of others. We don't have to go in and, in a kind of fundamentalist way, solve every problem immediately uh, so as to chase away doubt. Live with the discomfort, because if they can worship and doubt, 
having followed him and knowing him so well, then how much more should we allow for doubt when we are separated by time and space? But at the same time, in that pursuit of truth, as we seek answers for that doubt, uh, we have to allow ourselves to see Christ in that place. Just as the disciples are there, they worship him even in the midst of that doubt. The second thing is this. Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. Uh, in John, at the end of John, as he's praying that high priestly prayer at the end, he says, um, as you sent me at Jesus says, as you, the Father, sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And so here he is repeating with the authority, uh, passing that mission on. Uh, God, God the Father gave the mission to Jesus Christ, the Son, to come into the world, to reconcile the world to himself. And Christ, after his resurrection, at his ascension, gives that same commission to us to go into the world and to sanctify the world, as though the way that Vatican II puts the role of the laity, to go into the world to sanctify the world. We do that by being the body of Christ, by continuing the mission of Christ, who is our head, right? We are now the incarnation. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus, and Jesus the head gives us direction as we're to go. But from the very beginning, we see creativity and and development happening in that early church, as first of all, with Paul being a missionary to the to the Gentiles, taking the faith to a place that they never imagined it would go. the The way that you and I uh, are included in the faith and worship uh, is is something that the first disciples would never have imagined in those early days. But because Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age, because he gave us the Holy Spirit, there is a vibrancy. And yes, the church is ancient, ever ancient, but the church is also innovative, ever new, ever ancient and ever new, as the church listens to the Holy Spirit, as the church... Um, lives out that that union with Christ and adapts to the needs of the world in the times and the places in which she finds herself. So for Paul, that meant bringing the Gentiles in into the fold uh, and into the faith in a way that made sense for them, which was different than it than it looked for those who were Jewish. Uh, in the same way, we have to adapt to our times, not to change the deposit of faith, but to change the modes and the ways in which we proclaim the faith and invite others into that mystery. Our reading from Church History today comes from the Introduction to Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document from Vatican II on the liturgy. The Sacred Council has several aims in view. It desires to impart an ever-increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful, to adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times those institutions which are subject to change, to foster whatever can promote union among all who believe in Christ, to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the Church. The Council, therefore, sees particularly cogent reasons for undertaking the reform and promotion of the liturgy. 
For the liturgy, through which the work of our redemption is accomplished, most of all in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, is the outstanding means whereby the faithful may express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true Church. It is of the essence of the Church that she be both human and divine, visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation present in this world and yet not at home in it. And she is all these things in such wise that in her the human is directed and subordinated to the divine, the visible likewise to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come which we seek. While the liturgy daily builds up those who are within into a holy temple of the Lord, into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, to the mature measure of the fullness of Christ, at the same time, it marvelously strengthens their power to preach Christ and thus shows forth the church to those who are outside as a sign lifted up among the nations under which the scattered children of God may be gathered together until there is one sheepfold and one shepherd. Wherefore, the Sacred Council judges that the following principles concerning the promotion and the reform of the liturgy should be called to mind, and that the practical norms should be established. Among these principles and norms, there are some which can and should be applied both to the Roman Rite and also to all the other rites. The practical norms which follow, however, should be taken as applying only to the Roman Rite, except for those which in the very nature of things affect other rites as well. Lastly, in faithful obedience to tradition, the Sacred Council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully acknowledged rights to be of equal right and dignity, that she wishes to preserve them in the future and to foster them in every way. The Council also desires that where necessary, the rights be revised carefully in light of sound tradition, and that they be given new vigor to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times. That reading again comes from the introduction to Sacrosanctum Concilium, and I think very well sums up what the whole council is about and, and gives us a good summary of what we're to expect in all of the documents of the, of the council. One, that it's for us to increase our vigor of faith as lay faithful. Two, it's for the church to be as efficient as possible in communicating that faith to the world. Three, it's for the promotion of unity among all those who follow Christ. And four, it's for us to be most effective witnesses to the world around us in our day and age. If you've never had the opportunity to read the documents of the Second Vatican Council, I strongly encourage you to go this week and read them. In fact, just come on over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. We'll put a link to them there on the Vatican website so you can go and read them this week. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to outsidethewalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.